about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hello, my name is Laura. Uh, please join with me. I'm reading from John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, and that's found on page 1075. John 21. Afterwards, Jesus had appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Terabias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana, Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were, to get, were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, there with fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Oh, hi, my name's Amy, and we're going to have the second reading from 1 John, chapter 1, which is on page 1207. <coughs> now, starting at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We make this, uh, we write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Come and have breakfast. Did you notice that in John 21 verse 12? 
page 1075 on the way through. Come and have breakfast. Can you imagine a more irritating thing for Jesus to say at this point? There is almost, I think, no more shocking line in the whole Bible. Come and have breakfast. As if all that has happened is that Jesus has gone on holiday and now he's back and would quite like to catch up. Let's remind ourselves of the events that have led to this point. The hours and the day after Jesus' crucifixion were a whirlwind of confused pain and despair for his disciples. At the last terrifying hour leading up to his death, they had all deserted him and fled. None more shamefully than Peter, who having promised only hours before to stay with Jesus to the bitter end, to death I'll stay with you, said Peter. Now denies him three times, denies three times that he knows him at all. And then Jesus had been killed, like the worst kind of common criminal, in humiliation and agony and a murderer, just a a bandit, had been spared in his place. It was so embarrassing, so humiliating. All their hopes, the dreams that had sustained them for three years on the road with Jesus, They'd lived with him. They'd loved him. He had been everything. And all those hopes were now ashes in their mouths. They had been brutalised by the utterly devastating, utterly normal fact of death. Death had sucked the life and goodness out of Jesus just as it sucked the goodness out of life. They had had a moment in the light, or so they thought, but now they returned to the shadow. As a last-ditch effort to restore dignity to Jesus, some of them had managed to start a decent burial process. Yet there was no getting around the utter devastation of all of their hopes and dreams. But then... Something had happened. Early on the first day of the week, John's Gospel tells us in chapter 20, the chapter before our chapter, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. The tomb was empty. But no body. A confused panic had ensued with disciples running this way and that trying to work out what on earth had happened. They assumed somebody had stolen the body. They didn't know what to think. But then in ones and twos and then all together the disciples had met Jesus alive again. First Mary, then others of the women, then ten of the disciples that evening. And then again, a week later, when they were all together, they met him and really met him, not just a ghost or whatever a ghost would be like. They, they knew what the idea of a ghost was. They knew what that sh- was meant to be like. Jesus was no ghost. They had eaten with him, touched him, held onto him, talked to him, 
Nor was it just some kind of powerful spiritual experience. It was far too real for that. The meetings happened to multiple people at different times. It was too chaotic. And they were unnervingly real and fleshy and tangible. And the fact was the tomb was empty. The disciples were a long way from having all the answers. What did this mean? What were they supposed to do? The one thing Jesus had told them was to go back to Galilee, to return to Galilee. And so that's what they did. They returned to the place where it had all began, by the sea or the lake of Galilee, where many of them had met Jesus for the very first time three years before. For many of them, this must have been a journey back to a life that they thought they had left behind forever. It must have felt truly bizarre going back home like this. Well, they're back in Galilee. And then Peter decides to go fishing. Odd, you might think. But, you know, perhaps that was all he could do. Perhaps they were waiting in Galilee, not knowing when Jesus would turn up or if he would turn up at all. How long were they waiting? Days, certainly. Perhaps they were starting to doubt what they'd just seen and heard and experienced. Perhaps Peter needed something he knew, something normal to clear his head. Peter and the others returned to work that had occupied them happily for many years. The sound of the water on the boat, the real physical work, something they don't have to think about all the time. They fish all through the night, but they catch nothing. But then, in the morning... As they begin to see light over the hills around the lake, a man standing on the shore calls to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? A bit of a weird thing to say, but you know there are weird people around. No, they reply, thanks for reminding us of that. Then the man says, Cast your net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. Why not, they think. Why not? Why not? Well, give it a go. And, you know, it's hardly hit the water when they feel it tug with weight. And as they watch, there are fish swarming, almost throwing themselves into the net so that they start to worry that it will burst. And then one of them suddenly stops worrying about the net and looks toward the shore and says to Peter, It's the Lord. When Peter hears it, his heart leaps. He reaches quickly for some clothes because he's naked, and then he jumps overboard. Forget the boat, he's thinking. Forget the fish. Forget all that. His heart is burning within him as he swims toward the shore while the others start bringing the boat in. It's only 100 yards, 90 metres, but it feels like miles. Peter is almost sick with emotion, Shame about his failure back in Jerusalem, but also desperate love and longing. 
When he gets ashore, though, Jesus seems to be quite interested in the fish. He's already cooking some. And he asks them to bring some more. It's almost as if Peter comes ashore after the swim and Jesus says, why'd you leave the fish out there? So Peter does it all himself. You know, the boat comes in, he has to do it all himself. And he drags the net ashore and it's full of big, beautiful fish. And somehow they even get counted. There's 153 of them. And then Jesus says, come and have breakfast. And the disciples sit down to a very strange meal. But not strange because it was all mysterious and scary. Because it wasn't mysterious and scary. It was perfectly normal. It was strange because of how normal it was. It was just breakfast with their friend and master. It, it was as if what was strange was not this event, not this meal, but everything else in the world they had ever experienced. There was no doubt about what they were doing. They were having fish for breakfast with Jesus. What had been called in question was everything else. Now, there was a symbolic meaning in what Jesus was doing. Jesus had provided a meal of bread and fish at the Sea of Galilee before when he fed 5,000 people, probably right near this very spot. I am the bread of life, he had said back then, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. As he cooked them breakfast beside the lake, Jesus was quietly calling their attention back to these things he had done and said before, so that the disciples now started to see their true meaning. But it was all so normal. It was all so undramatic, so mundane. Surely there were more important things to do than have breakfast. Surely Jesus' being alive again should make them do more than that. Well, yes, in, you know, in a way there were things to do. Jesus would soon commission the disciples to lead his people and to begin the difficult and long work of telling others of what had happened. They had lots of difficult work ahead of them, work that would cost them everything, in many cases their lives, and which would change everything. But at this first moment, it's also important for the disciples to see that in another way, there was nothing to be done at all. In another way, having breakfast was exactly the right thing to do. For you see, the meaning of Jesus' resurrection was just this, that the battle was won. That the fight was over, that the victory was won, and it was life that had won it. Jesus' resurrection means the victory of life, God's life, over against all the powers of death and darkness. It shows decisively and finally 
that what God did in Jesus was to secure life over against death, to give light instead of darkness. One of the disciples who was there at that moment by the lake later wrote the words we heard in our second reading to sum up what Jesus meant. Listen to them again. That which was from the beginning, he wrote, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This is the message we have heard, he goes on. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. They saw and heard and touched and ate breakfast with the proof that God is light and no darkness. And that in Jesus he had spoken a word of life that could never be silenced again. Jesus was alive again. He had won. Death had been defeated. In him, in his body, in his person, the perfect light of God's own being had come to bring new life to the world and darkness would never overcome it. And this is why this breakfast is strangely appropriate. Because nothing more needs to be done. Nothing needs to be proved. No opposition remains that can do anything to compromise or take away from this victory. Creation has been secured. And not some other creation, some other life, but this world, this world of lakes and fish and breakfasts is the object of God's gracious attention and salvation. And so there is space now, space to just bask in the light to celebrate God's victory. There is space for laughter, for fish, for a sigh of relief that it is all finished. God has breathed new life into his creation. And so we can breathe again. Jesus is alive. That is that. Friends, this Easter, can I invite you to come and share in this good news, in the joy of the victory of life in Jesus' resurrection. You know, we face a great deal of death and darkness in most of our lives. Sometimes we're able to pretend that this is not the case or avoid it for a while or pretend it only happens to others, but the shadow keeps rearing its ugly head and we face the same devastation that the disciples did in the hours after Jesus was crucified, the utterly final and brutal fact of death, the way it makes a mockery of all our hopes and dreams, of all our loves. If we think about it too much, it can be terrifying or totally demoralising turning life into a pointless passing of time 
like in Samuel Beckett's famous play, Waiting for Godot, in which one of the characters declares about human beings, they give birth astride a grave. The light gleams for an instant, then it's night once more. But that is not the truth of things. That is not the truth of things. Not really. That is only the shadow. And the shadow has been outshone. The truth of things is light. For God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And in raising Jesus from the dead, his light has shone and secured life against death. Jesus is alive. That is the fact that stands at the heart of reality now. That is the unalterable, utterly final truth that we must all come to grips with now. Jesus is alive, raised from the dead. So come and share. Come and see. Come and taste. Imagine yourself by the lake that morning, the smell of the smoke and the water, the crunch of pebbles, the feel of where the net was on your hands, the taste of the fish pulled off the bone, and the knowledge that everything you thought you knew about the world is mistaken. Because this wonderful man is back. Friends, come and share in this word of life. Put your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ, in his resurrection from the dead. Be one of his people and get a share in the new life that God has breathed into the world. Amen. Happy Easter. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.